This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. For the most part, Americans don't vote based on foreign policy. There are exceptions to that rule, of course, but in general, presidents stand or fall on what they do or don't do on the domestic front. But foreign policy obviously matters because you can never fully separate what happens abroad from what happens at home. Certainly not in today's globalized world. So if we looked closely at Joe Biden's foreign policy resume, what grade would he get Is there a Biden doctrine? And if so, how is it different from the Trump doctrine? And how has America's reputation abroad changed over the last, say, decade? I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Alex Ward. He's a national security reporter at Politico and the anchor of National Security Daily. He's also a former Vox colleague and an old friend of mine. Alex has a new book out called The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. It is a well-reported book that takes you behind the scenes of the Biden White House and their attempts to navigate international and domestic politics. Whether you're into foreign policy or not, it offers a useful survey of the last half century or so of global politics and the role the U.S. has played in the international order and how that order is shifting in real time. So I invited Alex onto the show to talk me through all of that. I had a great time and walked away with a clearer picture of the foreign policy landscape. And I hope you do, too. Alex Ward, welcome to The Gray Area. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. A starting point of your book is that American foreign policy has basically been the same since 1945. What does that mean? Yeah, so 1945, that's the end of World War II. And after that, the U.S. was the unquestioned superpower. We had the biggest economy, the strongest military, a country that was on the move. We really could do kind of whatever we wanted. Generally speaking, during that time period, Republicans and Democrats believed in the same kind of foreign policy, which was free trade, have a strong military, promote democracy, globalization, and make sure America is strong. Generally speaking, that was the bipartisan consensus. And what was interesting 
or what has been interesting is especially since the Iraq War, but in other points in, in recent history, we have seen that consensus start to break. And it really happened with the Trump administration. And so what I try to do with this book is go, here was a continuity of U.S. foreign policy for, for decades. Trump kind of one man red teams it. And Biden, who feels that you know notion of a liberal international order, all those things that I mentioned before, he has that in his bones. And he goes, how do I sort of bring America back to that consensus with uh, the caveat of making a couple updates? And I think what, what I try to f- explain in this book and also just in general is that Biden try- basically took some elements of Trumpism and brought it into his notion of sort of traditional foreign policy and has created a bit of a hybrid, a bit of like a liberal Trumpism, if you will, on foreign policy. How is it possible that American foreign policy has been so static, more or less, since 1945, when the world has changed so much during that period? How does that happen? We didn't have to think about it. We were kind of on autopilot. We were so strong, right? And then the Cold War happens and we go, okay, just be strong, defeat the Soviet Union. Berlin Wall comes down. That was the first time we started to freak out, right? This was the thing called the unipolar moment and, and all that. And we went, okay, well, what do we do now that, like, we're the unquestioned power? What do we do? So we start, you know, we do Gulf War One, kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait. We do the Iraq War, war in Afghanistan. And we're thinking, okay, maybe we can defeat terrorism now. Maybe we can do, maybe we could do all other kinds of things that we hadn't done traditionally. And we went away from that sort of decades consensus because we were adrift. And there's that old phrase that's kind of like, you know, we're out of money, now it's time to start thinking. We had all the money. We had all the military power. We had everything. The rules of the global game were basically written by us. So we didn't have to think. Now we're looking pretty challenged, right? If we look around the world, there are tons of hotspots, tons of issues that are hurting American dominance, let's say, or at least asking questions of it. So now is a time where I think also a lot of Americans are going, well, wait a minute. We Didn't we just squander all that power? And also, what did all of that power, all that influence, all of that global rule writing mean for me? My life got worse. I mean, are people wrong to ask that question for that hypothetical citizen? Does it actually matter that we squandered the unipolar moment? So to answer that, I have to kind of go back to 1945, because at that point, there were questions about what does the world look like, right? The U.S., along with other allies and partners, countries, decided to create the U.N., all these global institutions and all these rules of global economics and whatever it may be, to basically operate. The U.S. was looking for trading partners. The U.S. was looking to help democracies or rebuild certain countries. We didn't do this out of the goodness of our heart, by the way. We did it out of our own self-interest. If we had countries to trade with, if we had prosperous other nations, then the world would be safer and Americans would do better off. That was the theory. So you're pointing to something pretty important here, and that's the self-interest driving this whole period we're talking about, which, by the way, isn't new. Every country is always looking to maximize its own interest. But I think what I'm really asking here is, how did the rest of the world view America's foreign policy, and really America's place in that system. Well, look, it's not hard to point out the hypocrisies of American foreign policy, right? Like, if a lot of what we've been saying for years is, oh, we're you know going to support democracy and we're going to help promote human rights, there are countries in the, like Cambodia 
or Chile or um, Iraq or elsewhere that are going, hey, that doesn't look too good. You know, you guys are saying one thing and doing another. Take, for example, a sort of a more modern idea. There are a lot of people in the quote-unquote global south, this is really the developing world, who are going, hey, you rallied the world around Ukraine's cause, in part because it was a stronger power ruining the lives and violating the rights of Ukrainians. And I'm not saying I agree with this view. I'm just saying this is how a lot of people argue it. Then you've got Israel in their retaliation against Hamas's brutal attack, brutalizing a bunch of Palestinians in Gaza. And yet the United States is siding with Israel. Isn't that a difference? Isn't that a hypocritical? And that's when you have the Russias and the Chinas and the others of the world going, you know, here the U.S. talks a big game, democracy, liberal national order, but they only play by their own rules. Like, we at least are not going to lie to you, and we're going to be very open about that we want this to be transactional, and we're not going to have all this facade about values. Again, not saying I, I, I subscribe to that view. I'm just saying that that is one that has been appearing recently, but it's one that you can find at many other points in American foreign policy, right? Is Trump basically right that the post-World War II arrangement could no longer justify itself with the public? I mean, is that fair? Well, this is the complicated story, right? But we have to be honest that post-1945 globalization, liberal and national world order, was the greatest poverty eradication program in human history. Billions of people had their lives improved. The question was, did it really work out much better for the average American? The answer seems to be, if you look into the data, yes. Incomes have gone up, quality of life has gone up. But do you feel it? Right. And I think that this is the thing is that you've probably seen a lot of other countries do better comparatively than parts of the U.S. So when you say in the book that Trump called bullshit on the whole foreign policy game America had been playing for so long, is this what you're talking about? Is it the globalization? Is it the interventionism? I mean, is that kind of what he's rejecting? I think so. I mean, look, let's look at one of the things he talked about often was sovereignty, right? We, the United States, are a sovereign power. You, every other country, are a sovereign power. We are not going to tell you how to live your lives. If we have interests that align, great, we'll work together. But I don't care if you're a democracy. I don't care if you're an autocracy. You do you. And if we can work together, we'll work together. So in a sense, you know, yes, he's friendly with Viktor Orban. Yes, he's friendly with uh, Vladimir Putin. Yes, he's friendly with Kim Jong-un. For him, that doesn't matter because there are moments in his mind where he can make some sort of deal to make America safer. And for him, like, that's all well and good. Make those deals. A Biden conception, of course, or at least a traditional conception, is different, right? It should be an animating goal of American foreign policy to promote democracies and thwart autocracies. And if autocracies are on the rise, try to curb that momentum. As with all things Trump, there is what he says and, and what he does. There's the rhetoric and the reality. Did his actions actually correspond to his rhetoric? For instance, I remember him talking in the campaign about how dumb the war in Afghanistan was, right? But he didn't actually withdraw from it. It was Biden who eventually pulled the trigger on that. So anyway, did he actually follow through on the rhetoric? sort of, kind of, which is usually, honestly, the grade every president gets on their foreign policy. I mean, he did withdraw tons of troops from Afghanistan. He struck a deal with the Taliban to eventually, you know, take U.S. troops out. When, when, If and when we talk about Biden in Afghanistan, 
like one of the reasons Biden made the call to withdraw was because he was like, look, the U.S. already made a deal to get out. So we're going to get out. So in a sense, and Biden said so, like one reason we left Afghanistan was because Trump had already made a deal with the Taliban. But Trump had already been thinking about withdrawing troops from Germany, from South Korea. Like he did a lot of things. He put the tariffs on China. He basically tried to do almost nothing with the United Nations. He talked a lot with with autocracies. Like he did a lot of things that were outside the orthodoxy. The promise of moving the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, he did it. Tons of other presidents promised to do it. He he just threw darts at a bunch of orthodoxies. And in some cases, you know, it didn't prove good. In other cases, it kind of was fine. But I think the main point of Trump is everyone basically said, you've got to follow these rules of foreign policy. Otherwise, the world descends into madness. And I think what he proved is, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be good policy. You know, it might still cause problems, but, like, you can sort of break out of these traditional models. And it's mostly, on the whole, kind of, sort of going to be okay. It's amazing how much stuff you can break if you quite literally don't care about the norms or the rules or any of the institutions themselves. Look, I have read a lot of Trump books, and a lot of the things he says today are the things he said in the 70s and 80s. He has a worldview, and regardless of things happening around him, he's not going to change, right? So that makes it easy to sort of be different if you're going to be stuck in that mindset despite facts changing around you. Does Trump's foreign policy message resonate as much as it did without George W. Bush's presidency years before? No. I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that Iraq was a major reason why we're here. I mean, Bush wins, right? He beats Kerry in 2004. But Obama comes into office very strongly on the back of, I did not support the Iraq war, right? Now, his foreign policy was mostly traditional, but he also was starting to poke holes in things, right? His whole thing of like, don't do stupid shit. We're not going to actually escalate wars in the Middle East. We'll just drone people to death. Trump is a reaction to Obama, and he tries to go further, right? These foreign wars are stupid. Um, it's, it's hurt our country. We've spent so much money abroad. We've seen sons and daughters killed. That you know, corrupt D.C. elite is sending your family to war for nothing and decimating the American economy in the process. Like, yeah, that's, that is a reaction to the Iraq war. Biden who I would say was sort of more, in, in this sense, Trumpian than Obama, now that he's the commander-in-chief, is able to incorporate some of those thoughts he already had, what he learned and, his, and Biden's team around him learned during the Trump years, and gone, okay, the maintenance of the liberal national order, you know, that post-1945 world still should exist. But clearly it's not working for everybody. So what dials can we turn to sort of maintain it at the top but fix it towards the bottom. And that, I think, is what is animating and interesting about a Biden foreign policy compared to a Trump, is that Trump's is very much like, you know, bring the system down at the very highest level. Trump is bring it down, do it all different, and Biden is reform it. And I know that doesn't sound like a major difference, but it is when we're talking about how you're going to conduct the entirety of your global affairs. And you think if Trump wins... In November, he'll follow through even further on the kind of burn-it-all-down approach? Think of this, for example. From Bob Woodward's book, there was a piece of paper on Trump's desk that was, we're going to cancel our free trade agreement with South Korea. 
South Korea is a major U.S. ally. We've got thousands of troops there. We've got major economic relations with them. Like, their massive economic growth, if you've ever gone to Seoul, it's incredible how much that place has grown. All that has been sort of at the backbone of U.S. economic and and general uh, support and and nuclear umbrella and all that. So Trump was going to sign and that free trade agreement, and he had also been talking with the South Koreans about withdrawing troops. Gary Cohn, who's his top economic advisor, just snatches that off his desk. So Trump can't sign it. That's term one. That's where you still have people around Trump who, the quote-unquote globalists, who sort of agreed with that post-1945 consensus. It is highly unlikely that Trump is going to surround himself with people who, like Cohn or others, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, or others like that, who agreed with that general consensus. In which case, whatever Trump's wins are are that will break down that system are unlikely to be reeled in. When we get back from the break, Alex tells us how Trump's popularity played a role in shifting the Democrats' foreign policy agenda. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. 
Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. early part of the book is really about how Biden and his team and really establishment Democrats by extension are coming to terms with Trumpism and the reality of American foreign policy today. And I guess what I'm wondering is, were they coming to recognize that they were actually wrong, that a lot of the conventions of establishment thinking when it came to foreign policy were actually just wrong and outdated and needed to be revised? Or was it more that they just reckoned with the reality that they could no longer sell that to people? even though they still believed in it. I think a little bit of it of both, but let's talk about, so Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor to Biden, right? He is next to Hillary Clinton in 2016 when she loses to Trump. He's there as she's calling to concede. And he had been her right-hand man, right? Policy planning director at the State Department, helped do the Iran deal. A guy who, you know, went to Yale, Rhodes Scholar. All of his mentors were very traditional foreign policy thinkers. But he's a guy from Minnesota, plays hockey on ponds, modest upbringing. In his mind... He is of the middle class. Those are his people. And he sees Trump win. And he goes, what did I miss? What did we miss? What did Trump connect with that we in the establishment don't understand? So he spends the four years that he's out of office going around the country, establishing an organization to figure out what's actually going on in America, incorporate that into and meld it with that traditional foreign policy thinking and create sort of this new reformed idea and also build that foreign policy infrastructure, that intellectual framework. So whenever the next Democrat comes to face Trump in 2020, they will be equipped with that thinking and it will help to blunt the foreign policy side of Trump's message. He and others create this you know, big tent moniker, a foreign policy for the middle class. That every foreign policy decision has to first and foremost benefit an American middle class person. That's kind of what they came up with. Sullivan leaves an organization he founded that helped, you know, inculcate this idea. And he goes to work for Biden. And between their many conversations, they kind of agree that this is the right framework. And every message you hear from Biden, Every message you hear from Jake, because Jake speaks often, and even messages you hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is as traditional a foreign policy thinker as exists in the Democratic establishment, they all have this message. What's in it for you? Why are we doing this? Why are we spending so much time in Ukraine? Why are we going to compete with China? Why are we so harsh on Russia? Why are we making you know, trade agreements with other countries? What does this matter for you? And that level of, or even just that language, that messaging is wholly from the trauma of losing to Trump. It would not have happened without Trump. It just wouldn't have. And it's now two administrations in a row that are trying as hard as they can to connect these high-minded foreign policy ideas to really concrete middle-class objectives. That is new, and that is, I think, a very interesting development. You know, but they haven't done that, right? The wisdom or the conventional wisdom was always that globalization and free trade are absolute goods that grow economies and lift everyone's boats. We've all heard that. And there's a lot of truth in that. You just you have to acknowledge all the good that free trade has done and all the peace the world experienced during this era we're talking about. And yet, it's still true that 
a lot of the gains of this arrangement we're talking about have gone away for everyday people. And the same old platitudes aren't landing the way they used to, and they shouldn't, frankly. Well, sure. Again, if you've watched American foreign policy since the Iraq war, does it feel like we're killing it? You know, does it feel like we're winning? It doesn't. It just doesn't. Like after World War II, I think we have only one kind of one war, right? That would be kicking the Iraqis out of Kuwait. We didn't win in Vietnam. Korea, we still saw North Korea and South Korea split. Iraq, no weapons of mass destruction. And yes, we toppled Saddam. But like, can you say we established a flourishing democracy, which was the goal? No. Afghanistan, 20 years. Taliban is back in power. I mean, for all of our economic might and all of our military uh, prowess, we haven't really done too hot. And so then you connect that with, weren't we supposed to be kind of killing this game? And we're not. People are smart. They get it. It's not like they dislike NATO or they dislike European countries or those allies, but they're going, what do I get out of it? That is the question. Uh, and the Biden administration, by the way, has done a horrible job of messaging. When they say they sent billions of dollars to Ukraine, yes, they've sent billions in economic aid, but it's mostly the value of weapons on shelves that already exist and have already been bought and paid for to Ukraine. And so then what does Team Biden say? Well, if we send those weapons to Ukraine, they're older anyway, but send it to them. They'll stop the Russians. Then we'll invest in making newer, better weapons that will equip our military. And who's benefiting from that? Manufacturers in Arkansas, in Alabama, elsewhere, who are going to make more American weapons. And so there actually is sort of a jobs program element to that. So that is like, a, in their mind, a tangible benefit, a tangible like middle-class benefit of supporting Ukraine. Whereas if you're Trump, you'll probably say, we're spending resources we barely have on a foreign war. And also, by the way, we've got problems at the border and we've got decimated economic areas in this country. And why are we sending any amount of money or any of our weapons abroad when maybe there could still be a war with China in the future and we've just given a lot of our stuff to Ukraine? In a big picture way, this kind of relates to the two dueling philosophies in international politics. There are a few different schools Primarily, there are, there are realists and there are liberals. For the liberals, or liberal internationalists, they believe in interdependence. They think it leads to peace, which is why they believe in globalizing the economy and spreading democracy. It's why they believe in international law and international norms. It's why they believe in building international institutions that provide vehicles for mutually beneficial cooperation. And then on the other side, you have realists, and the realists are more zero-sum, right? They're very skeptical of interdependence. They don't really believe in it. They just, they start with the premise that the international system is anarchic. There's no global police. There's no governing authority. There are no permanent allies. There's no natural harmony of interest in the world. There's just the state and the role of the state or the job of the state is to just defend its own interests. And that's how you survive. Would you say that with the Trump era, the realists are sort of winning out a little bit and, and Biden and the Dems are kind of bending to that? Or is it more that it's just kind of muddled now that we're somewhere in between? There's always a mix of realism and, and liberal nationalism, right? Like, you have to be a liberal nationalist in some way because the UN exists and global institutions exist. So there, there are ways in which we are acting in like a global common scenario. The fact that the United States is a permanent member of the, of the five-member UN Security Council, right? Like, 
unless we get rid of that pretty excellent privilege, we're sort of always liberal and nationalist. But I would say every president in general has been realist in the sense of it's always about the self-interest, right? You always do what is in the best interest of the United States. Now, I think in that, how you define what's in the best interest of the United States is different. So every president is trying to be have the best military and the best economy. You're looking to be the strongest in the game. And that allows you to do different things. So that said, like, if you're Trump, you're saying, I'm going to be strong because I want to make sure that everything we do benefits us and, like, kind of only us. It's a zero-sum game. The other side is that, yes, we still want the U.S. to win and get stuff, but, like, it helps if others are also getting something because then they're not so mad and it's not so confrontational. So if you're a Biden-esque liberal internationalist, what is it that you actually want? What, what is the goal of, of our foreign policy? Is it security? Is it prosperity? Is it simply defending a, 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 an international order in which America sits at the top? Is it all of the above? What? I think it's pretty simple. And I think that's what they've tried to message, not, not super successfully, but I actually think it's a, it's a simple idea. And it's, again, borrowed from Trump generally. Maintain the international order that has helped most of the world and the United States for decades, but reform it in a way that makes life for the American worker better. That's very easy to say. I don't know what that means. Well, I'm not sure they do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a problem, Alex. Sure. Yes. (laughs) But I, I think what they would say, truly, you maintain certain tariffs on China because there are parts of the American economy that are so precious we should hold on to. We've passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which has tons of investments, you know, clean tech investments, because that will help a manufacturing boom in the automotive sector and, and, and sprinkled around many other parts of industry that will help the American economy. We're going to invest in rail and other infrastructure because when you have greater infrastructure, that helps the economy. We're going to defend Ukraine because it's better when democracies thrive. And it is also better to not have a country like Russia, which has the world's largest nuclear arsenal, arsenal on the march, through Europe, where we have a lot of allies. And I should note, when Biden's team came into office, they were like, our main goal is upholding and reforming the liberal national order. All these other side things, like you know, Israelis, Palestinians, that's on the back burner. North Korea's on the back burner. Even Russia, right? They try to kind of park Russia. Like, yes, we know you're interfering our elections and, and cyber stuff, and we know you've already invaded Ukraine before, but like, it, you know, we do, this doesn't need to get worse. Keep that on the back burner. We'll focus on China, which is unquestionably the world's second strongest power. And if anyone's going to challenge the United States, it's going to be China. And I should note, this return to great power competition, which Biden is a fan of, was actually like indoctrinated in the Trump administration. They put it into their strategy documents. Wait, what do you mean when you say Biden is in favor of great power competition? That the animus of American foreign policy should be directed at combating Russia and combating China, which was in strategic documents and like the Trump administration thinking what they wanted to do. I mean, we're, we're already caught up in this great power competition with China. Is that even something that we can win? Is winning to zero sum? Is that the wrong way to think about our relationship with China? Look, pretty much since the Nixon administration, there was one way of thinking about China, which was quote unquote engagement. If you work with China, you'll bring them into the liberal national order. They will be a quote unquote responsible stakeholder and they will play by the rules of the game and not try to change them. Trump called bullshit. (laughs) He was like, you guys have tried, and all they've done is dump their goods in the United States, take our manufacturing jobs, and decimate the American middle class. You don't necessarily have to subscribe to that, but there are a lot of people in America and politicians who were like, finally someone said it. Finally someone said, to hell with China. It's not worth trying to bring them in. We tried. We really tried. 
But now it's about confronting them and doing what's best for Americans. And this whole idea that we can work together in some beautiful way was a pie-in-the-sky dream. Trump made that argument successfully. This whole town is now compete with China. Democrats, too. So that is a continuity between Trump and Biden, is this focus on great power competition. Granted, Trump probably wouldn't have cared about Russia-Ukraine too much. He's made that pretty clear in multiple statements, right? He'll end it in 24 hours or whatever, which incredulously. It's very likely he would have just been like, Israel, do what you got to do. Go take care of that. If you need our help, let us know. Where Biden is clearly involved in, in both of those. I mean, is there actually that much daylight between Trump and Biden on the question of of Israel and our posture towards it? There is. So the big difference is if you don't like the way Biden is supporting Israel, not supporting Palestinians, you're not going to like a Trump foreign policy because he proved during four years that he would just stand behind Israel as they kind of did whatever they wanted. I can't imagine that Trump is going to be much better for Palestinians than Biden is. But why do I think either of them could make a case? Well, one is if you're Trump, you're going to say, The Palestinian issue, you know, Hamas proved there can be no two-state solution. Instead, I'm going to focus all my attention on getting Israel to be friendlier and have normal relations with other countries in in the Arab world, in which case it'll be a safer region overall, and then the U.S. can basically extricate itself out of it. And all those resources that we've spent in the Middle East all these years are going to be spent in the United States. If you're Biden, you're still basically kind of saying that message, right? They're still for normalization, but they're for normalization in part because they think that is a way to an Israeli-Palestinian resolution. And in their mind, the only way to stop the chaos in the Middle East that keeps bringing the U.S. back is to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in which case they will invest in some way in solving that. And that matters to you as an American because once that is solved, then America doesn't have to be so hands-on in the Middle East. They are both headed towards the same spot, right? No one wants to be involved in the Middle East more than we have to be, but they have different ways of getting there. After one more short break, how differently do Trump and Biden see the rest of the world? Is there actually a big difference? Stay with us. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is raging on, and it, it looks like the longer that goes, the more likely it is that Russia wins, whatever that really means. But in the midst of all this disruption, it seems fairly clear that Russia has become quite adept at weaponizing chaos and disruption to sort of move the global chess pieces in their favor. Do you feel like they're they're actually positioning themselves to be more influential than they were in the previous unipolar era, really since the Cold War? I mean, it helps that they have a lot of nukes, right? If they didn't have a lot of nukes, we wouldn't be so worried about pissing it off. I mean, this is one of the things that, that Biden is worried about. And actually, Trump is talking about it too. When you hear Trump talk about it, the way he's saying is, even sending anything to Ukraine risks World War III. That's why he wants the war to end. Trump is terrified of nuclear war, as he should be, and a World War III breaking out. I should note, Biden is constantly saying that. When he talked to his team about what the response to Ukraine should be, it was avoid World War III. That was like one of his key pillars. So everyone's kind of tiptoeing around Russia. And Russia knows, and Vladimir Putin knows, that that is always the ace in his hole. That even though it's not a particularly strong country, it can punch way above its weight. One of the arguments Biden has made is that he had a steady hand on the wheel of foreign policy. Now that he's been on the job a few years, can he still make that claim plausibly today to the public? I think he can, but it's going to be hard. Like Israel, look, Israel, Hamas uh, is going to be tough, right? Because there are genuine questions about, hey, did you guys ignore the Israeli-Palestinian problem enough that this blew up in your face? And are you really standing by the ideals that you promote by standing so strongly behind Israel despite all that's going on with Palestinians and their suffering. Now, granted, the Biden administration has pushed to bring in more humanitarian aid, et cetera, and, and talked way more about the humanitarian plight there than I think any other administration would have, um, but certainly not enough for a lot of people, right? And then with Ukraine, they put all their eggs in the Ukraine basket in their defense and are backing the counteroffensive uh, from last year that did not work. So was it worth all of that time and effort? Did you guys nail this, right? I'm not sure they can say they did. That said, this is a tumultuous time in world politics. And overall, the U.S. economy grew. It got out of COVID pretty strong. Relationships with allies got stronger. You know, Russia got weaker, generally speaking. China, for the moment, isn't doing too hot economically. We are competing and we're pushing back on them economically and in other areas. There are investments in the U.S. that could pan out in the long run in terms of the global market. Yeah, you could make that case. But I think Trump will say, maybe what matters to you more is avoiding World War III. And Biden is flirting with his defense of Ukraine and not ending these fights soon enough. 
He's flirting with making the chaos in the world far more chaotic. So why not bring me in to end those fights? Because they're not mattering to you anyway. What would matter to you is if the world broke out into World War III. And I think that's going to be their main arguments. What do you think has been Biden's greatest failure? <sighs> Tough. I think you have to say climate change. Yes, they made a bunch of green tech investments. And yes, there was this agreement at COP, this massive climate change forum. But, you know, there's no real consensus on how to cut green, you know, car carbon emissions, on cutting greenhouse gases. The world is still going forward. And in fact, Biden is... In, you know, still drilling, and and you, and part of his power has been: look, we've got we're an energy power, we've got natural gas, et cetera. So we might as well unleash that and be a net exporter instead of a net importer of energy. You would think that maybe with clean tech and all that, all this will start. You know, all these emissions and all this these temperatures will start coming down. But I don't think they've met anywhere near their ambitions on that. And that's considering, and I'm holding them to their standard, by the way. They came in saying this was an existential threat to America and the world. And if something is an existential threat, that better be your main focus. And they didn't. They didn't focus on that, at least to the, to the level of gusto that they hoped to. Well, the sort of concluding claim of the book is that we are entering this new era of foreign policy, and it's going to have a little bit of Trumpism in it. It's going to have a little bit of Bidenism in it. And whoever wins that struggle will go a long way in determining what the future looks like. Who do you think is going to win that? And how will that change the course of... American foreign policy. I, uh, I've, I've stopped making political predictions a long time ago. But what I will say is that you saw three of the top four Republicans, Trump, DeSantis, and, and Ramaswamy, all buy into a Trumpism. Nikki Haley is not close to Biden on foreign policy, but she's closer to Biden than she is to Trump, DeSantis, and Ramaswamy. So the future of the Republican Party looks very Trumpian. It is unclear to me what happens in the future of the Democratic Party regardless of a Biden win or loss. I mean, there are some people who are already now saying, well, there isn't that big a difference between Biden and Trump, right? Like they both wanted out of Afghanistan. They both don't want to do foreign wars. Uh, they both are for tariffs. They both are for the Abraham Accords. They both are, you know, going after China. Fine. But there are, of course, major differences. Like there's no question, right? What, for Ukraine, for example, like either the U.S. stands by Ukraine with Biden or it doesn't with Trump. And by the way, you, you can think either, either one is good or bad. I'm just saying like that is like a clear, stark choice. The Trump doctrine is everything America does well, it has to benefit America regardless of how it benefits others. The Biden doctrine is with allies and partners, America can achieve its goals. And they both agree that whatever they do has to help the general American more than anyone else. But that's sort of the difference. One is very selfish. The other one is mildly selfish. But I think you're going to see two parties that generally speaking are moving away from that post-1945 consensus and reforming it in their own ways. I would say the Republican Party is looking to change it a lot more. I'm not saying necessarily in a negative way, by the way, but I think they're looking to change the infrastructure a lot more, whereas Democrats are looking to reform it. So more tear down versus reform. That, to me, regardless of who wins Trump or Biden, I think that's the bigger, longer-term story, is if you are a fan of general American foreign policy on the whole and what it's tried to achieve— and that matters to you, and you think it just needs some tweaks around the edges, then you probably want to pull the lever for Democrats. If you think it has been an abomination, problems around the world, it has not worked for the general American, and we've squandered all of our opportunities, then my guess is you're probably going to pull the lever for Republicans down the line. I don't know if the Republican Party changes. I don't know if the Democratic Party changes. But the trend lines are whatever kernel 
that Trump and Biden agree with, that there needs to be a more domestic element of our foreign policy, that to me, I think is going to be more continuity than change in the future. Once again, the book is called The Internationalist, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Alex Ward, excuse me, Alexander Ward, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Jonathan. Our producer is John Ahrens. Jorge Just is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. And Alex Overington wrote our theme music. You know I want to hear from you. After you rate and review the podcast, let me know what you think of the episode. You can drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.